0: Hi, this is Steve Nerlich from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 35 Galaxies. When doing an episode on galaxies, most astronomy podcasts would outline the galactic taxonomy. Spiral, lenticular, elliptical and irregular, and most astronomy podcasts would probably discuss the distribution of galactic size, their various stellar populations, and the role of dark matter in keeping them all together. But of course, here at Cheap Astronomy, when we do a podcast on galaxies, we ask, why are they fat, and how do they talk to each other? Dear Cheap Astronomy, Why do spiral galaxies have bulges? Firstly, it probably has nothing to do with supermassive black holes. Not all spiral galaxies have bulges, but it's looking likely, from observations to date, that all spiral galaxies have supermassive black holes. As we've discussed in earlier podcasts, see episode 99, it may be that the first proto-galaxies formed around black holes, which were probably just stellar-sized black holes to begin with, but as the proto-galaxy grew by consuming nearby star clusters and later dwarf galaxies, the black hole within it also grew through gobbling up anything that chanced nearby until it grew to a supermassive size in parallel to its proto-galaxy growing to a galactic size. Now, any object that's captured by a growing galaxy's gravity is first drawn into a downward spiralling orbit before it finally merges with the growing galaxy and adds its momentum to that galaxy. With a steady consumption of such objects spiralling in, Conservation of momentum means the galaxy as a whole begins to spin, and that spinning then spreads the mass of the galaxy out into a disk shape, just like pizza dough when it's spun up in mid-air. As we've also discussed in earlier podcasts, like episode 109, a galaxy is way too big for its central mass to exert any meaningful gravitational influence on its outer parts. Instead, the whole galaxy holds together in a disk because its inner parts are interconnected to its outer parts by all the intervening gas and dust that the galaxy has accumulated over time. And as the galaxy spins, density waves form where circling gas and dust are caught up in traffic jams and those traffic jams become bright star-forming regions which is what produces the appearance of spiral arms. In this way, much of the intervening gas and dust is either consumed in star formation or it gets shifted outwards by centrifugal forces. So, the central areas of the galaxy will become bereft of gas and dust until all that's left there are aging stars. With no intervening gas and dust left to constrain them within a flat spinning disk, the occasional gravitational interaction between those old stars begins to bump them out of alignment. Eventually you end up with a large population of ageing stars whose orbits go all over the place, forming a rough blob of stars that's rounded in the middle but flattens out towards the persisting disk of the galaxy where intervening gas and dust is still keeping everything spinning together like pizza dough. However, all that is what is known as a classical explanation. The prevailing modern view of galaxy structure is that dark matter plays a key role in holding a large galaxy together. It's speculated that about 90% of the Milky Way's mass is dark matter, which is generally hypothesized to be distributed in a halo around the galaxy. We need to include dark matter in our understanding of galaxies to explain why the outer parts of galaxies move at similar angular velocities to the inner parts. Some theorists propose that a dark matter halo is evenly distributed around a large galaxy, while others argue that it's more likely to be clumped, or cusped, towards the galaxy's centre. Since dark matter is utterly invisible, we can only infer its distribution by looking at the distribution and velocities of visible matter. And all the data we've collected so far does not unequivocally support one model over the other. In any case, neither the even spread nor the clumpy cusped model helps to explain why so many large spiral galaxies have bulges in the middle. So the classical explanation that we gave you about gas and dust dispersal still seems the best way to explain bulges. Indeed, for the most part... The role that dark matter plays in the shape and the evolution of galaxies is, well, dark. And thanks me. While there is a compelling case for the existence of dark matter when considering the rotational profile of spiral galaxies and the clumping nature of galactic clusters, a whole bunch of other features about galaxies don't seem to need dark matter at all this might reasonably get you wondering when exactly we are going to find these obstinately undetectable, but otherwise massive, particles. But of course, here at Cheap Astronomy, we'd rather just go and ask the aliens. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Is there a galactic internet? Given the universe's ultimate speed limit, the speed of light, it doesn't seem likely that members of an advanced alien race are going to spend years, decades or centuries sitting in a cabin watching DVDs just so they can come and visit us. Crossing vast interstellar voids for the sake of a handshake or to strut up and down in front of some poor unsuspecting soul and make beep-beep noises just isn't worth the time, the effort, the cost or the risk. After all, since we can readily exchange information at the speed of light, what's the point of physically travelling vast distances at less than the speed of light for a face-to-face meeting? Whatever inhabited exoplanet you visit, it's pretty unlikely the atmosphere, the gravity, or the radiation will be compatible so it's not likely you'll be able to have a relaxing chat with your new alien buddies over coffee. And if your new alien buddies are 100 light-years away, and if, in your more than 100 years of travel time, they A. develop a xenophobic dislike of visiting aliens, and B. develop better tech than anything you've got on board, you might end up regretting your decision to go and visit them. So, if there are advanced alien civilizations out there, it's likely they've already thought this through and decided the best way to meet new aliens is online. Any race that has begun to actively colonise nearby star systems will surely establish a communications network across those colonies. And as those colonies begat more colonies that communications network would be even further extended. Over such a light-year-spanning network, real-time communications would no longer be feasible. At best, you could upload an interesting piece of data with the faint hope that your grandchildren might receive a response from a distant correspondent. How such an established network might come to cross species barriers is a matter of speculation. But it's not hard to imagine a distant colony encountering a similarly interconnected alien civilization and both agreeing there was value in extending their respective reaches by interconnecting their respective networks. And perhaps such cross-fertilization steps have already happened several times over. If such a galactic interspecies internet is really out there, we can expect that the common basis of any encoded messages will be mathematics as well as physics. Any alien civilizations that have mastered both space travel and interstellar communications would have a common understanding of electromagnetic propagation, gravity and mass, relativistic time and distance, and the periodic table of elements, which is organized using internally consistent and universally measurable characteristics, so the periodic table might be the Rosetta Stone that allows us to translate alien communications into something we can comprehend. Because electromagnetic radiation quickly attenuates over distance, the galactic internet would probably rely on tightly beamed transmissions between nodes rather than indiscriminate 360-degree broadcasting. If we're lucky, a node might be nearby, say within 100 light-years anyway. But before we can start receiving and translating any messages from it, we're going to need to log on. Some kind of logon process would almost certainly have been established to avoid the network picking up and transmitting random noise, since our universe is full of random electromagnetic noise. To initiate a logon, we'd need to be transmitting something that indicated we are intelligent and have something useful to contribute. This is why we should probably desist from the indiscriminate broadcasting of incomprehensible material like I Love Lucy episodes, Beatles songs, or Twitter messages. If we want into the Galactic Intelligence Club, it's time we started broadcasting some more intelligent content that has some chance of initiating a response. And thanks me. Gosh, I am doing a lot of audio these days. Anyway, we can pursue a path of being very, very quiet in case some scary aliens decide to warp factor 9 over here and steal all the cookies. Or we could consider that physics means that anyone wanting to cross 100 light years to invade another civilization will need to take at least 100 years to do that, and after that 100-plus years of travel time we could technologically kick their sorry alien butt all the way back home again. And since anyone who's likely to hear us has that understanding already, it's probably okay to start a conversation. History does teach us that isolationism really works out well for anyone. And that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science query, or you just want to kick some sorry alien butt, why not write to CheapAstro at gmail.com and we'll kick ass for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nurlick, Cheap Astronomy.